Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 7. Continuing on in our series, Jesus for Everyone. And we're going to look at a guy today that is definitely not everyone, but I think deals with something that... uh, Deals with something and goes through something that everyone goes through. So, um, Luke chapter 7. And this story, I think, might be one of the most unexpected stories in the Gospels. Now, that, that says a lot because we've, we've read some pretty unexpected things already. I mean, last week we saw a dead guy get up and, and, and walk and, and live, so that's pretty unexpected, right? Uh, we've seen uh, guys heal, people healed of leprosy. We've seen uh, blind men that can see. All of those things are pretty unexpected, uh, but this one uh, is not one that you've seen coming uh, if you've been following along so far in the book of, uh, in the book of Luke. Um, so I, it's just not something that, it, that if you've been following along as we've met characters in this gospel, this is probably one of the last things you would think is going to, to happen. A few years ago, I was listening to a, uh, a speaker give a talk about the pathway to happiness and what things uh, are most important to find happiness in this life. This is not a, a Christian speaker, it's just, just someone kind of uh, talking about it. And, and in this talk, he talked about a scientific uh, psychology study uh, about spaghetti sauce. I don't know if any of you guys may have heard this or may have seen this before. Uh, but what he found is that if a store offered three to four types of spaghetti sauce, that store, uh, specifically for the spaghetti sauce, would receive a higher rating, uh, a higher uh, satisfaction score uh, from, the, from the purchase of uh, those, three to four, those three to four types of spaghetti sauce than the store that offered 30 to 40 different types of spaghetti sauce. The one that offered the fewer, uh, the, the, the fewer different types would, would actually get a higher score than those that would offer uh, 30 to 40 different types. And this was completely counterintuitive. They did not understand, uh, at least the, the study initially did not understand how this would be the case. Because logically, what you would think, what, what you and I would think is, uh, the, more, the more variety that you have, the better chance that somebody has the opportunity to get what they want, Right? The more types of spaghetti sauce you've got, the, the better chance you've got of getting exactly what it is you're looking for. If there's only three to four types, uh, then, then you know that exactly what you want may not be there because there's just not that much that is there. Uh, you would think the greater variety would have the higher customer satisfaction ratings, but you would be wrong. That is not how that worked at all. The reason for this kind of paradoxical result comes down to one word expectations. It's all about expectations. The store that had three to four styles allowed the person to, to pick kind of from the, the main like general categories. Do you want chunky? Do you want uh, like, like soupy? I don't even know what they, would, what they would call that. Like old world style, I guess is what they call that, right? Um, do, do, you want, do you want it like that? Do you want it with just you know, meat sauce or just tomato? What? Just a few like uh, types, you could kind of choose from like the, the big categories, um, but that's really all that you could, could, could choose from. And so you knew going in, you probably weren't going to get exactly what you wanted. 
But with the 30 to 40 types, the customer's expectations rose significantly and the customer was convinced they should be able to get the exact sauce, exactly the sauce that they wanted. The larger the variety, the higher the expectations. The lower the, 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 the variety, the lower expectations. And so what happened then is uh, the, the larger variety created higher expectations and then created lower customer satisfaction because as it turns out, we're probably not as good at knowing what our taste buds actually uh, want as we, as we think we are. We don't actually know quite as much as we think we do. So the conclusion that the, uh, this is a scientific study, the, the conclusion that they drew is that the key to happiness is low expectations. The lower the expectations, the happier you are. If you hang around me much, you'll find that I can have a bit of a sarcastic sense of humor. I say things that I uh, don't mean in order to get a laugh or a reaction. Sometimes there's truth to them, sometimes there's not. To say that that's not my wife's favorite part of my personality would be an understatement. Um, uh, but she knew what she was getting when she married me. So she stuck with me now. And that's kind of how, you see how this works? That's how this works. That's kind of the, the, the and, and I say this, this phrase uh, pretty often. The key to happiness is low expectations. Because I think it's funny. I think it's a funny phrase. I think it's a funny kind of paradoxical reality that we all kind of know to be true. But I'll be honest, I don't know what I think about it. I I don't know how to really process it because intuitively we all kind of understand how that works. Uh, But I don't think cynics are are happier people either. Uh, I don't think cynical people are necessarily happier uh, people. Um, But we all kind of know like inherently that this is true. Like we say things like, I just don't want to get my hopes up. I'm just not trying to think about it because I don't want to get my hopes up. I'm just guarding my heart here, so I'm, I'm trying not to like focus or dwell on it because if I get my hopes up, then I'll, be, then I'll be crushed. And we work hard to convince ourselves that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Sports fans are the worst at this. Sports fans are the worst because we will constantly, uh, we're constantly waiting for the moment when our team will throw the critical interception, will give up the big home run, will we'll, we'll miss the big shot. And, and, and that way we can say, I knew it. I knew they weren't going to be able to, to, to pull it off. I knew they weren't going to be able to close it. I never got my hopes up in the first place. I knew that they couldn't do it. It was just a matter of time. The reality is that doesn't work at all. We like to like try to convince ourselves that it doesn't that that it works, but it it doesn't. Our, our hopes are there, whether we want them to be or not. We're still sad when we lose, disappointed when the thing that we tried to do, when we tried not to hope for, doesn't come through. On the 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 the, the flip side of that, the saying that life wouldn't be so hard if we just didn't expect it to be so easy. I find a lot of wisdom in that statement, too. So I guess what I'm trying to say in all of this is that, that the key to happiness is probably uh, low expectations. That is probably true on, on a level that none of us would like to fully admit. But I'm not sure it's the best way to go through life. I'm not sure that's the best type of person to be. Because you know what? I've never met a cynical person and thought, you know, that guy's got life figured out. I need to be like that guy. That's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up, a cynical, depressed old man. That's what I want to be. Nobody says that. I, I, never, I never think, 
that I like that guy. I think, good grief, what a miserable person. Who in the world would want to be around somebody like that? Who wants to live like that? Negative Nancy can go somewhere else. Um, And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a guy that has some massive expectations, like sky high, you can't get higher expectations, and that he was quickly finding out that his reality didn't look like anything that he had imagined in his mind. The reality for him was a very, very different picture than the expectations that he had. We read last week uh, uh, the amazing story of the widow's son being raised from the dead, the Roman soldier's servant being healed with just a word from Jesus. Jesus never even meets this servant, but heals him. Uh, and so far, we've, 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 we've seen this pretty consistent pattern from Jesus. People ask for healing, and they get it. People need something, and Jesus delivers. People ask for cleansing, and they are cleansed. People that are dead live again. A lot of happy endings to some very tragic stories, some very real and painful problems. So now Jesus is going to hear from an old friend, a cousin. And this cousin has a big problem. So let's see how Jesus handles this issue. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him and come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, on the surface, this comes across like an innocent question. This comes across like, uh, hey, this guy's just trying to figure this out. But if you know who John the Baptist is, you know that this question is not an innocent question. It is an astonishing question. It should, like, like knock you over that John the Baptist, of all people, would be asking this question. Let's recap for those that, do not, uh, that, that don't remember, may not remember. This is the cousin of Jesus. This is the one that was born to an old barren woman, uh, uh, Elizabeth, the one whose dad, Zechariah, this is the story that we tell at Christmas a lot, whose dad, Zechariah, was visited by an angel and said that, that your wife is going to be pregnant. And he was so, like, he, he so didn't believe it that, that he, was, uh, he, was, he was made to where he couldn't speak and he had to communicate, like, on a chalkboard. Like, this is this, is this guy, right? This is who John is, a, a child of promise that whenever Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house and Mary is pregnant with Jesus uh, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John, it's John that leaps in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. It's the same John who wears uh, camel hides and eats locusts and honey out in the, uh, out in the wilderness. The guy that you, you, you like God, call me to anything. Just don't call me to John's ministry. I don't want that one. Like, that's who this John is, and he did it. He, he, he calls all of Israel to repent from their apostasy. He didn't pull any punches with anybody, especially the, the Pharisees. It's the same John the Baptist that Jesus uh, that, that says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he's, uh, he's unworthy to even tie his, his sandals. That he, he must decrease so that Jesus' ministry may increase. 
This is that John the Baptist. It's the same John the Baptist that baptizes Jesus and that sees the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and hears an audible voice that says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the John that we are talking about. And John hasn't been around Jesus to really see how Jesus' ministry has taken off because John has been somewhere else. John has been in jail. John has been locked up. And so he needs some messengers to go because he's been locked up and he's trying to figure out what's going on with this Jesus' ministry. What all is he doing? Like, like I knew this was the guy. I was 100% confident. There was, there was no one more confident in his message than John the Baptist. I don't care how confident you are in anything you've ever said. John the Baptist was more confident in what he said. He was fully confident in everything. And now he's sending messengers to Jesus saying, Are you the one or should we look for another? What in the world? How does this guy get from being the most confident guy in the world in his message to now having to, 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 to ask the, this question? From the moment he was born, he was told the stories about the Messiah, what the Messiah would do, how the Messiah would change everything for Israel. He was told these stories because while the Messiah had all these different prophecies, John had his own prophecies about him. Like, I can't even fathom that. I can't even fathom being born and being told when you're like three years old, like reading something in the Bible, a prophecy about what somebody really important was supposed to do, and somebody be like, that's you? Like, I can't imagine how that would work, how that would feel. Um, but that was, that was the story of John the Baptist. His dad, whenever, he, 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 whenever John is first born, there's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole song that he sings, prayer that he offers. And this is part of what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He had people telling him, that's about you, John. That was John. That's who we're talking about. A pedigree like no other. If anyone should know who Jesus was, anyone, it was John. More than, more than Peter, more than, than Andrew, more than any of the, the, the apostles that were there with him. If anyone should know, outside of maybe Mary. Like it, it's John that should know who Jesus was. And John is now asking if Jesus is really the one. It seems as though John is having a season of doubt. A crisis of faith. A, a, a dark night of the soul. How is it that the guy with this pedigree that knows this much about the Messiah and about Jesus can question if Jesus is really the one? Surely John knows. we got to understand a little bit more about John's story that Luke never tells us, but we get from some of the other, the other Gospels. You have to understand a little about John's expectations for the Messiah. Two things come into play here that lead to John asking these questions. Expectations and circumstances. Those two things drive what is happening here with John. Expectations and circumstances. 
And those two things, if we are not careful, can cause a lot of problems for any of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So first, the circumstances. What are the circumstances of uh, John sending this question to Jesus? Well, first off, he had to send the question to Jesus. He had to send it because John couldn't go himself. John was a prophet, and, and by that I mean he's a guy who didn't flinch uh, when it came to making people mad. We've seen Jesus do this too. Mostly Jesus' critiques are aimed at the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the religious gatekeepers in uh, town. We've seen how Jesus does that. John did plenty of that as well. Uh, but he went after some others too that Jesus has not gone after. Uh, in fact, he went straight to the top. He went after the king. He went after Herod. This was, uh, this was at the end of chapter 3 uh, in Luke. We kind of read by it. We didn't really spend much time on it. But at the end of chapter 3 of Luke, uh, we, we, we see that, uh, that John is calling out Herod for divorcing his wife in order to take his brother's wife. Like that's, that's the, the dynamic that's going on there. Like talk show stuff all the way here. And, and this is the weird stuff that's going on. And John's like, stop it. You can't do that. That is, you cannot do that. Stop doing that. And there's no Bill of Rights uh, uh, available to John. He cannot appeal to freedom of speech. There is no freedom of speech. Uh, and kings don't really like it whenever you tell them that they are wrong. So the king has John arrested, thrown into uh, jail. He's thrown into jail, and he's kind, of, uh, he's kind of left there, which for John is not a huge deal because from his perspective, his ministry was basically over anyway. His job was to prepare the way of Jesus. Now that Jesus is on the scene, he should shrink back anyway. Well, boy, did he, because he's just thrown into a jail. Like, he's, he's done. Uh, and so, so some time goes by. We don't really know how long. Jesus' ministry is three years long, or three years long, so we know that it's, it's less than three years, uh, but more than just a couple of months. So best guess, probably a year or so. We don't really know. Um, but some time goes by, and John is getting some reports about Jesus. All sounds good, uh, but John's getting a little bit restless. After all, a man like John, with his kind of like boldness, is not a guy to just be like, all right, guys, y'all have at it. I'll leave that to other people. He's a guy that wants to be in the middle of it. He's a guy that wants to come and, 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 and really kind of get after it. He wants to get in people's face. He wants to call people out. He wants to make sure the message is out there. He does not want to sit still in prison for a long time. But sit, he does. And he sits, and he sits, and he doesn't really get, he gets reports about Jesus, that Jesus is doing some stuff, but he doesn't hear about an army being built. He doesn't, he, he doesn't hear about Jesus calling out Herod. He doesn't hear about Jesus doing the kind of things that, that John was really starting to do. He doesn't sound like things are happening. In fact, it doesn't sound like things are happening at all the way that John thought they were going to. So that's his circumstances. Now his expectations. John knew all about the Messiah. Obviously, he knew all about the, the prophecies that pertained to him, who he was supposed to be. But he also knew all about the prophecies that pertained to the Messiah. He knew them all because he is supposed to be the one to come out and, 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 and proclaim, hey, this guy that the Old Testament prophesied about, here he comes. 
All these things the Old Testament said, let's just rattle them off. Let me tell you, that's in this guy, Jesus. He's right on my heels. He's right behind me. So he knows all the stuff from Isaiah and Malachi and all throughout the Old Testament about who this Messiah was supposed to be and what this Messiah was supposed to do. John knew what this Messiah was all about. He knew it cold. He knew it well. It had been drilled in his head since birth. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is in his hometown? He's back in his hometown and he, he stands up to, to read the scroll. Do you remember this? Real like dramatic. And it says all the eyes were on Jesus whenever he, he says this. He reads this passage that's about the Messiah from Luke chapter or from Isaiah chapter uh, 61. And he, he looks at everyone and he says, Today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. You guys remember that? And then they like try to throw him off a cliff because they didn't like what he had to say. Um, su- super like intense passage that, it, that is there. Um, do you remember what he read whenever he read that? Let's go back and read this again because I think, it's very, I, I think it's very interesting to compare what Jesus read in Luke 4 versus what he says in Luke 7. So Luke chapter 4 verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the Messiah's job description. This combined with a handful of other things, uh, really primarily in the book of Isaiah, this was the Messiah's job description that John was counting on. And do you see that right smack in the middle uh, of that prophecy? Do you see what is there? To proclaim liberty to the captives. So John is hanging on to that one. He's like, that's me. I'm captive. Where is my uh, liberty? This was John's expectation. Surely Jesus would do this for him, of all people. Surely whenever Jesus comes and takes the throne, he'll come get his cousin. He'll come get John, who's done everything that God has asked him to do. Surely he'll come and get him. And yet here he sits, day to day, week after week, month after month. And so somewhere in there, John starts asking questions. He starts like, like, like rolling things over in his head. He starts kind of comparing the reports that he's getting to the reports that he's not getting, the things that he's not hearing. He starts kind of arguing with himself. He starts wondering if he's gotten it wrong, if maybe he misunderstood something. John does this. Of all people, John does this. The bold, brash most certain person there is, is having second thoughts. He is doubting. Somehow we know doubting Thomas, but we don't know doubting John. But he's having his doubts. And he knows the answer. He knows the answer, like like in his heart. He knows who Jesus is. But his difficult circumstance and his unmet expectations are gnawing away at his faith. They're gnawing away at his faith, and he needs someone or something to bolster that faith. He just needs something to come alongside him and say, yeah, it's going to be okay. No, you had it right, John, just so he can be like, okay, okay, okay. 
I'm sure I, I knew that. I, I knew that was the case. I knew it. I just, I just needed a little something. This is where he's at. So perhaps your circumstances, like John's, have taken over your life. Here's the thing. All of us either have been in, are in, or will be in a place in our lives where, where circumstances kind of take over and nothing looks like it should. Nothing feels like it should. Nothing is working out the way it was supposed to. Nothing is right. Nothing is in its place. Everywhere you look, you see remnants of what was supposed to be instead of what, in, in, instead of what, what actually is, is there. Like you, you, you see, oh, this is like the shadow of what should be there, but it's not there. It's different. Maybe it's, it, it's health. Maybe it's your marriage or your, your lack of a marriage or your lack of, of what you thought your marriage was supposed to be like. Maybe it's your kids or your lack of having kids. Or maybe it's, it's, it, it, it's how things are going with your kids. And like none of this stuff is how you imagined. None of it is like how you thought it was going to be. Maybe the money is scarce and the joy is even harder to find than that. You name it, whatever it is, your circumstance and your expectations have not come together. They have not aligned. On top of that, God has not really met your expectations either. You played by the rules. You followed God. You gave your life to him. You did it right. You followed Jesus. And this is the thanks that you get. Like, come on. This is not how this was supposed to go. Every story in the gospel seems to end with a dead man coming back to life, but you're sitting there in a pit and, and just, just wondering if God is around anywhere at all. Sitting in a pit that might as well be a grave. Your expectation was that following Jesus means everything would go well with your life. And it turns out that following Jesus has not been quite what you were promised. I mean, so many of you are there right now. So many of you know that place well, even if you aren't there right now. And others of you aren't there right now, but you will be. You just don't know it. Maybe like John, you had really good reasons for your high expectations. I mean, honestly, whenever I look at John's situation, I kind of think to myself, like, these aren't unreasonable things for John to expect. After all, Jesus is the one that said, these things are fulfilled in your hearing. So maybe your reason for your expectations are good. Or maybe you had some really bad teaching that told you so long as you have faith in Jesus, it's all going to be okay in the end. It's all going to be all right. That's not always the case. So let's see how things, how Jesus responds to this doubting John. Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. So basically, they came and they asked this question. And he told these messengers from John, hey, just watch what happens here for the next hour or so. Just watch. You'll get your answer. Just watch. 
And he answered them, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Do you see what Jesus did there? That list that, that Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen, it, it, it probably sounds pretty familiar. It sounds a lot like Luke chapter 4, like Isaiah 61. It sounds a lot like all the prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament of what the Messiah is going to do. It's this whole list of things that the Messiah was going to do. And Jesus pulls from these Old Testament prophecies and says, go tell John what you just saw. But he leaves one off. He says, go tell John all of these things, but he leaves one of them off off and so these guys go back to john they go back to john they're like hey we found jesus and we talked to him just like you asked it was amazing john i've got to tell you all the things that we 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 saw it was amazing that we got to see all of these things happening there there were people there that, that that were healed there were people that that could see for the first time jesus was doing amazing things john he must be the one i'm certain he's the one john John says, I knew it. I knew it all along. Whew, man, that feels good. That is a weight off my shoulders. That is, that is like, oh, I knew it. I just, I, man, I shouldn't have asked. I knew, I knew it. I knew it. I, it's. Did you ask him directly, though? Like, did you really, like, did you find him and ask him? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did, just like you said. We did exactly what you asked. And he said that we should come and we should tell you this. We, we, we wrote it down. We got it right here. Here's what he says. He says, he says, to tell you about the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, and how the poor have heard this good news. Oh, man, that's great. That is so good. I'm so glad to hear that. I knew that was the case. It's so good to hear that. He is the one. I never should have doubted. I, I repent of this doubt. I repent. I should have done it. What, what else did he say? What else did he say? Well, I mean, nothing else, John. That's all he said. That's, that's what he said to tell you. What do you mean that's all he said? Like, there's got to be something else. Like, did you miss something? Did, like, were you both there when he said that? Like, did one of you just miss this? I know you can get distracted by some things. Like, maybe you missed one of these things. Like, like surely he said, he said more. No, John, that was it. That's all that he said. But we're sure he's the one, aren't you? And I think John's response at that point is probably something like, Yeah, yeah, he is. John knew what it meant that Jesus just conveniently left that one off, that set the captives free part. Just wasn't time for that one yet. It meant that Jesus was the Messiah, but that whole set the captives free part, wasn't time for that one yet. That's not for this moment. That's not for John. That day would come, but it wouldn't be this day. John was just going to have to stay there in those circumstances. There's no happy ending to this story. In fact, it's about as, as, as irreverent and, and as, as disgusting as you can imagine. You can read it in Matthew 14. Herod throws this massive party His stepdaughter does a dance for his party guests. She's so well received. Herod is so pleased. 
He says, I'll give you anything you want for this dance that you have done. And after conferring with her mother, she says, I'll take the head of John the Baptist, please. Herod didn't really want to do it, but he also didn't want to look bad in front of his guests. So he sent for John. John is brought out into the court. His head's cut off and put on a platter. It doesn't get more unceremonious than that. It's how the story ends for John. No miracles, no earthquakes to set him free, no nothing. And you may be thinking, well, thanks for that one, Pastor. The rain matches the mood. I really appreciate that. That's super encouraging. Now, what am I supposed to do to get me through like Tuesday now? Because I'm not looking forward to any of this. Just waiting for the guillotine. Much appreciated. Jesus gives us a hint. It's a little bit coded. It's a little bit in, in, in kind of riddle how Jesus talks. But he gives us a hint in verse 24. John's messengers have gone to deliver the news to John that they think is probably good news, but John knows it's not. In verse 24, when the messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? So, so he's talking to the crowds about John the Baptist. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. All right, what in the world? Jesus what 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 does that mean what are you trying to communicate to this crowd so he turns to this crowd who who evidently heard the questioning from John the Baptist who evidently heard what was going on there and he turns to the crowd and he doesn't denounce or dismiss John he doesn't say oh ye of little faith how could you have doubted John he turns to the crowd and he affirms John. He affirms everything that he stood for. He affirmed what he preaches. He says, you didn't come out to the wilderness to hear some soft preacher. You went and listened to John because, because you wanted to hear the thunder when he preached. You wanted to hear what he had to say because he didn't mess around. Because he wasn't pushed around by the wind of culture and opposition. This was a man who had a message, and he was resolute. He wasn't soft and wishy-washy. He had conviction. You all know that's who John was. There is no one that's been born that is better than John. You all know that's who he is. So Jesus doesn't denounce John at all. He's just been questioned by John, something John should have known. And he doesn't denounce him at all. He simply reaffirms John's message. He says John had it right. John knew. Jesus doesn't see John's questions as, as apostasy, as backsliding, as, a, as this, this crisis that he's got to manage. Like, oh no, if one of my bigger, biggest supporters is starting to waver, I've got, I've got a problem I've got to deal with. This is a PR issue now for me. Jesus doesn't see any of it that way. He isn't taken aback by John's doubts. 
And he's not taken aback by ours either. For too long, we, we, we have said that faith and doubt were on opposite ends of the spectrum. That to have faith meant we had no doubt. And we put those two on opposite ends of the spectrum and said, those two don't cross at all. For too long, that's how we have, we have built out the Christian faith. But that's not true at all. The opposite of faith is unbelief, which is something totally different. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Jesus attacks, condemns, and rails against unbelief. Not doubt. Doubt, doubt is not, not the opposite of faith. It is simply the other side of faith. The two work together. We, we tend to think that faith is our mental state when we have all the information and we say, this is where I, I plant my, my, my flag. When we, when we have all the information and this is what faith looks like. But the Bible never talks about faith like this. If we have all the information, that's not faith, that's knowledge. That's a different thing. That works in a different way. Faith is having trust in spite of not being given all the information. Faith is is trusting even when the circumstances seem to be calling us to to, to back away from that that commitment. I I could do a whole separate sermon at this point, but I'll leave it here because I think Jesus has some some more for us as as we go through this. But this is important. Unbelief is sin and railed against by Jesus. Doubt is part of faith, and Jesus will meet us here. He may not answer all our questions. In fact, I can guarantee you he won't answer all of your questions. But he will meet us. He answered John. It wasn't the answer he wanted, but he answered John. He showed up for Thomas. He pulled Peter out of the water. He'll be there. Doubt is not evidence that you don't love Jesus. There's such such a bad history of the church saying that if you doubt your faith, if you doubt, if you have questions, if you're trying to wrestle with things, then that means that you're walking away from something and that you don't love Jesus. That is not true. Doubt is not evidence that you don't love Jesus. It's evidence that you don't have all the answers. But Jesus gives us and points us in the direction of how to process all of this back in verse 28. At the very end, Jesus turns things back to, to what is always his main point, where he always kind of keeps going over and over and over, what he's always driving home, the kingdom of God. Jesus says to look at John, this great prophet, this great man this, that, that, that is as great a man as has ever lived. And then this new kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, that he's establishing right here in this moment, in this ministry, in this new kingdom, anyone that follows Jesus will be even greater than John. Jesus says that as great as John was, we will all surpass him as followers of Jesus in this new kingdom. John only saw the very beginnings of the arrival of this kingdom. He never saw the king fully take his throne. We have. We've seen the king ascend and take the throne. 
We've seen what it means for the king to triumph, to, to, to rise again from the dead and to take his throne. We've seen the full picture of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells us that anyone that has renounced their right to be king over their own lives and has bowed to this new new king of, of heaven, that person is even greater than John. John pointed forward to the Messiah. And then Jesus points us forward to the kingdom. The one that he initiated while he was here on earth. And that he will fully consummate when he returns. John struggled. He was in a dark place. And he needed a fresh outlook to remind him of why Jesus had to be the one. Jesus' response to, to John I mean, I'll just be honest with you. It's probably not the one any of us want to hear. What we want to hear him say is like, John, I'm coming, man. I'll be there. And then the story ends with, 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 with Jesus riding on a horse like Gandalf with the army behind him, right? That's, what, that's how we, we want the story to end for John. So none of us want this response for G, from Jesus, but the response from Jesus should be a balm to us. To know that it's okay to go to him with your questions, your pains, your doubts. Just so long as we know that as we go, the response will will usually not be, hey, I'll, I'll take care of all those problems and wipe them away. That's usually not gonna be the response. Instead, the response is, you can trust me in the midst of all of them. Even if your head ends up on a platter. Because the kingdom of heaven is at its core a commitment to a kingdom that is superior to this world. Like, do, you, do you understand this is how Jesus teaches us to, to, to live? That the, the, this world and the problems of this world will not will not define our reality forever. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we will deal with the consequences of a broken world. Yes, we will do all of these things. But the core commitment of the ministry of Jesus, of the life of Jesus, is that there is a coming king and a coming kingdom, and that is where all of our hearts, all of our treasures, everything should be focused, everything should be moving towards, everything. The worst that they can do to you is kill you. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, then that doesn't matter anyway. If he's not, then the pain of this world is really all we have. And we just got to make it through it. But if Jesus is who he says he is, there is something far greater for us that is ahead of us. And so that becomes the question then, not Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another in order to make my circumstances better? It's Jesus, if you are the one and I believe that you are, then then what I'm looking for is not another king. What I'm looking for is another kingdom. 
And that's where I'm leveraging every ounce of my life. From the money that I make, from the career that I have, to the suffering that I go through for, I go through, I'm leveraging all of it for that coming kingdom. And I believe that it all has a purpose. And it, it, it may be terrible, it may stink, it may be awful, I may hate every moment of it that I am going through, but I have a, I have a purpose in it. It is only the Christian faith that finds a purpose in our suffering, in the brokenness of this world, that we can leverage for something greater. Outside of this faith, suffering is just something to endure, to avoid. Man, I feel like we talk about this a lot here, but it's where the Bible takes us. Over and over and over again, it's where the Bible takes us. The Bible isn't afraid to confront the brokenness of this world. And it does it with one of our heroes, John the Baptist. It doesn't just do it with some like, like you know, B or C character that's kind of like off on the side. It is a central theme that continues to come before us. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then even if it kills you, doesn't matter in the end because the kingdom is so much greater that is a hope we can cling to and then what goes along with that is all kinds of other stories in here where the good does happen i mean i don't want to stand up here and just be johnny raincloud and be like yeah that's the way it is we'll see you on the other side like that is not exactly how that works either there's all kinds of stories of where the suffering does end and where things do go well and so we cling to those and we hope for those and we pray for those and it is good for us to do so and god is honored by that but he is also honored whenever we say i'll follow you jesus and my life is built not for this kingdom but for the next Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the stories and the gospels. I thank you for the stories all throughout scripture where people are healed, where hope and expectations are met and surpassed in in, in spades. Father, I thank you for those stories. And we, we, we need to hear, we long to hear those stories. But Father, I thank you for the stories too. Where, where people deal with the reality of this world and we are able to see even our heroes go through difficult things, go through questions that we have to. But I thank you for stories, for, 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 for how you give us these things and you teach us to have faith even in the midst of all these other things. And so, Father, I pray now for those that are in this room that are going through difficult things. I pray for happy endings, for, 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 for healing, for, for healed marriages, for healed hearts, for all kinds of those things. Father, we long to see those things, and, and we know that you give those things. So, Father, we ask for them. But, Father, we also want to, to have the faith of John the Baptist, that even though we have questions, even though our circumstances do not look good and our expectations of what we thought life was going to be like have not been met, we hold on to Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to do that. And that when we don't hold on, you hold on to us. We 
ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.